0: the one time Matt you're not up there (sighs) it's good to see you all so blessed by you Uh, two announcements Um, uh, the first one I know some of you are coming to our Saturday inductive uh, Bible workshop Bible study workshop I want to encourage you You guys just yesterday finished uh, your third Saturday your third week you're doing well I want to encourage you stay the course uh Pastor Bill was sharing with me yesterday. We had about, I want to say a third of the normal, no, a little more than a half, plus a little bit more of the normal class. I know we've been doing this a while. I know right around this time, fourth class starts up, people are like, the weather's nice, things look. Good. Study your Bible. It's a few hours. Come in, it'll change your life forever. I really want to encourage you, stay the course, stay the course. You know, I'm gonna move this. I can't see my <laughs> now the musicians are gonna be mad at me. See now you don't have to see me through any oh. <laughs> <laughs> Zach. Zach. I wanna see my buddy Zach. My Zacks, Zacks plural. All right. Um people on the online are going, what is he doing? What is wrong with him? Yeah, the O C D kicked then. He's he's it's no good. All right. So the first announcement, again, was um, uh, please stay the course. If you've been coming, we want to encourage you continue to come. Please stay the course. It's about seven weeks or so. You've got a few more. Uh, it's going to be worth it. Stay the course. The second thing is just an update on the land. We had our Perkin probe done. Um, I think that was a few days ago uh, last week. Uh, everything went well. Everything perked well. Praise God is good. Yeah. So the engineers are working on the septic. I know that's what we all love to talk about, right? You know, but uh, it's a, it's it's needed. So uh, praise God for that. Everything is going well. Um, so they're figuring all that out, and they, they're crunching numbers on that. Um, and just an update, people have asked, uh, even in first service, how are we doing? We have this Sunday and next Sunday to have our monies together so that we can obviously... Produced the uh, letter of funds, and we're thirty six thousand. 36,000 praise the lord yeah praise god god is good so if if there's if there's any last minute you guys are like hey i don't know i want to encourage you this sunday or next to be the the time to get that in please be praying um and then we have our conditional use meeting in may may 28th i believe it is at six and we'll want to be praying for that as well okay so i just wanted to give you guys good news and please open your bibles to first corinthians what first corinthians yes 1 Corinthians 15. This is our our third Sunday that we have been going through uh, the teaching on the rapture. And uh, today we're going to be going through the final teaching on the five views of the rapture. We spent last week talking about pre-tribulation, pre-tribulationism. And today we'll be looking at the fifth and uh, the five views, excuse me. And then we'll continue in 1 Thessalonians 5 as the Lord should lead next week, line by line, verse by verse, and precept upon precept. So um, we're going to bow our heads, we'll pray, and we'll get into the the word of God. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your holy word, Lord. Thank you that we can say, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, Lord, that we have Bibles in our hands, the Holy Spirit's our teacher, and that Jesus, we can come here this morning and just, Lord, thankful, come here to be uh, just servants and learn, Lord, and just be together, Lord. We're just so, so very grateful for this, God. So I pray, Lord, you will cast away all distractions, that you allow us just to understand these things that you've put in your word, and, and Lord, even these ideologies of men. Lord, may they all be cast away, and may only your scripture stand. Lord, we just want to hear what your spirit has to say to the church. We love you, Lord Jesus. Guide us and anoint your word here this morning. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. All right, so the second view we're going to be talking about here this morning is called the mid-tribulation view, or mid-tribulationist. Again, pre-tribulation, we've already talked about that last last Sunday, and that's the idea that before the seven-year tribulation, before that seven-year tribulation, we're going to have a time where the rapture is going to occur, and we're going to be caught up to heaven that way, okay? To meet Jesus Christ in the air and then taken to heaven, and that's what we read in John, in the book of John, okay? We also read that in 1 Thessalonians 4, but that's what God has shown us. However, there are some that take the mid trip position, and that really comes back to what Daniel teaches in Daniel chapter 9, and they center on the 1,200 and Uh, 60 days there. I think in first service I said 1240, 1220, but but it's 1260. It's three and a half years, and it's in Daniel chapter 9. If you have a Hebrew translation, or you even look at a Septuagint or anything that goes through the Greek, you realize that it says seven sevens or seven weeks. That's how we understand and understand that God is talking about years there in particular. So we've been through the 69 weeks. God does a break between 69 and 70th week. That's what we're seeing today. and That's actually what's spelled out in Daniel 9. And as part of Daniel 9, those 69 weeks, which we know each week is representative of seven years, okay? So in the portion of Daniel 9, and you can turn in Daniel, if you want to hold your finger here in verse... Corinthians, if you maybe didn't read it last week or the week before, you can turn back there just as a reminder, and you'll see that Daniel clearly was given prophetic uh, vision. He was told about how there will be a great um, abomination, desolation, that there will come a treaty being made, and at the halfway point of that treaty, three and a half years, that basically the, the Antichrist as we know it, he's called the prince in that passage, he will go through and desecrate the okay, uh, God's temple that we get from Ezekiel 40, but he's going to desecrate. He's going to claim to be Lord. He's going to break the covenant that he's established with his people. Okay, so what happens is mid-tribulationists have come to that point and said that's the significant point of the rapture. We think the rapture should be then. Well, the only problem with that is that you have to take a full harmony of all Scripture. We don't get to isolate Jesus or pretext and take one passage. We must take all of Scripture. So. They hold that Christ will rapture his church midway through the seven-year tribulation period, if you're taking notes. Thus, believers will endure the first half of the seven-year tribulation. That's what that means. That means for the first three and a half years, we'll be going through that. And then, or they believe, well, the church will be going through that. I want to be clear. And they maintain that God's wrath will be restricted to the latter half of the tribulation. That's how they explain it. Because there's passages in 1 Thessalonians 5 that says the church isn't given unto wrath. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, again, says God, Jesus Christ, is going to deliver us. These things are all spoken of, right? And we know these things to be true. But when you look at many of the views, it's hard to reconcile all those passages. So one of the things that they have done is they said, well, then, you know what? Even though it's a seven-year tribulation period, clearly God's wrath is not going to be poured out during the first three and a half years. It's only going to come at the latter, at three and a half years. So therefore, God will, Jesus, will catch up his bride at that midway point. That's what they believe. Now, they will mention the three and a half years. They will say 42 months, 1260 days, because they'll go back to Daniel 9 and say, Daniel 9 says... And he goes through, and it's true, it does list that in Daniel 9, but he's talking about the abomination and desolation there. He's not simply saying that's when the tribulation will begin because then you'd have to ignore Matthew 24 and other passages. And they, in, they basically say that three and a half period, the time that we know Antichrist is going to desecrate the temple, as we read in Ezekiel and Daniel, they say that's when the wrath actually gets poured out. But they ignore it entirely the book of Revelation. They they well, I don't want to say they ignore all of it, but they don't they don't properly begin in Revelation chapter six, which is when we see the the wrath being poured out or the, the consummation of that, okay? They usually will say that the last trumpet, you remember two Sundays back we talked about trumpets and trumpets matter, right? And there was 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 52. I asked you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. If you look at 52 here this morning, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last. Trumpet. Now they'll hold on and say, "See, that last trumpet is the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed." The problem is, is that's not the last trumpet. It's part of God's entire tribulation period, or God's entire, um, you know, trumpet for the entire end times events. And I'm going to explain that in a little bit. They're going to say that that trumpet is the same. If you hold your finger here, turn to Revelation chapter 11. And if you look at verse 15, they will argue, mid-tribulations will say, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now this is the seventh trumpet, right? And they'll say, well, see, that's the seventh trumpet. That must be the same trumpet that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1552. Now, again, that's when they believe the rapture will take place amid tribulations. And I spent last Sunday going through, uh, I made a sort of graph for you all. You could kind of see how it broke out on a table. So you could see how these two trumpets, and they, they had different meanings. First of all, different occasions, different places they took place. Some were, one was in heaven, one was on earth, one was being blown in the air, um, one was being blown from heaven, one was being blown to bring the body of Christ, or I should I say, gather the saints at that time together. There's different occurrences and, and reasons for those trumpets to be being blown. Okay, And although mid identify the time of the rapture, if you had to ask a mid-tribber when they would say, well, then where in the book? Because that's the main question you want to ask. Where in Revelation do you place the rapture? That's that's the question that's got to be addressed here this morning. They'll say, and since you're already near Revelation there, turn to Revelation chapter 14. They will place it right at chapter 14, and specifically they'll place it between verses 1 through 4. They'll say, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of a loud thunder. And I heard the sounds of harpists playing their harps. Well, that, that wasn't what we read in 1 Thessalonians, was it? And that wasn't what we read in 1 Corinthians 15 either. But let's continue. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among being first fruits to God and to the lamb. Now, I will say one thing as we're gonna go through these views tonight. At least the mid-trib, mid-tribbers have a resurrection in their passage that they would say is the midway point. If you remember his pre-trib, 1 Thessalonians chapter chapter 4 verses right there around 16 through 18, we recognize that Jesus Christ is talking about the rapture, but he's also talking about the resurrection, right? The dead in Christ will be raised first. So at least the mid-tribbers, I say this because as we're going to go through some of these views here this morning, many of them don't have a resurrection at all in any place, which is a big problem because how do you, t- how do you take the whole? What happens? What happens to the body? How do you, he's the, Jesus Christ was the first fruits of the what? Resurrection. It's very, very important. So this is where they place the, the, their, their rapture. Okay. But there are flaws with this. And I'd like to go through a couple of these here this morning. First, the trumpets in first Corinthians chapter 15, 52 and revelation chapter 11, 15, cannot and should not ever be equated with each other. Again, I I discussed this a few Sundays back, even last Sunday in particular. I encourage you to go back if you weren't with us at that time, if you've missed that teaching. But just just be clear, there are very significant noticeable differences here. Uh, Just because the first trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 is called the last trumpet doesn't mean that it's actually the last trumpet in God's whole prophetic plan. And I think that's very important. Because what they'll do is they'll look at Revelation chapter 11, and they'll say, well, this is the, the final trumpet here, and they're actually wrong. And I'll, I'll, God's word tells us that, because in Matthew 24 is the actual last trumpet. That's the last trumpet for the outpouring of the judgments that are coming, but Matthew 24 actually says when they gather the elect, speaking of the Jewish people at that time, right? and there's a trumpet blown. So if you really want to be technical and accurate about a last trumpet, then let's be technical and accurate about the last trumpet. And that's in Matthew 24, right? But there's a gentleman by the name of Paul, Dr. Paul Benware. He's a biblical professor and a theologian. He said, those of us in school settings know that during the day, there are a number of last bells that ring. The last bell for the eight o'clock class rings, but that is not the last bell of the day. Last must be understood in relationship to the context in which it's found. And that's very, very important. So when I was in school, we had the bell that would ring, and that would say, get your butt to class, right? And then you had another bell, like, that would, you know, double or something like that. And if you got that second bell and you got to class afterwards, the teacher was already there giving you a, oh, they used to call it jug, justice under God, giving you a turnaround, uh, the mo- you know, you're going after school, you're in trouble, you're going to stay after, uh, after for detention, right? So uh, some of you are like, what? It's a long story. (laughs) Uh, Roman Catholicism at its best. So uh, I'm just going to leave it there. Furthermore, the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 is not the last trumpet. As I mentioned, if you turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. Isn't context king? In hermeneutics, Matthew 24, verse 31. This is when the coming of the Son of Man is, right? He says, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of heaven to the earth. Now, if you read Isaiah 11:12, 12, you know who this is speaking of. Who is this in context written about? This is Jewish believers. This is talking about the Jews that... Our lives that are going to go through this great tribulation, that they're going to be crying out for help. Come, Lord Jesus. They're going to realize it was Jesus because after three and a half years, they're going to recognize the Antichrist, who they made their covenant with, had lied to them because he's going to want to be worshipped like God. And at that point, they're going to go, what did we do? And they're going to cry out, right? And there's going to be a period of time, another actually three and a half years, as we know, because we read it's seven years. And at the end of that seven years, that's when Christ is going to come back, and there will be a last trumpet, and this is what you read in Matthew 24. This is not the same trumpet that we read in 1 Corinthians 15, is it? This is 52 specifically. This is not the same trumpet we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. How do I know? Because that trumpet, well, what does the Bible say? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, please, right? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, verse 16 and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of who? Of God, not of an angel. And the dead in Christ will what? Rise first. There's a resurrection in there. That's the pre-tribulation perspective. That's 1 Thessalonians. That was what was taught to the early church. So two different things. The mid-trib are taking that passage and that last trumpet in Matthew 24, which is the last of the last trumpets, When Jesus Christ is coming for his bride to the earth, excuse me, let me be clear. He's coming to touch down physically on earth with his bride. The other trumpet is when the believers in Christ that are of that generation that will be raptured are caught up in the air to meet Christ in the air, to be taken where? To heaven. Why? Because Jesus said, I go to prepare a house for you. If it were not so, I would not have told you, right, John? The book of John teaches us that. So two different, again, we talked about this a Sunday ago, two different events. One is a physical coming to touchdown. One is a catching up in the air and two different purposes. What they're doing is they're taking that same trumpet because it says trumpet or because it says last trumpet and they're taking it and they're saying, oh, it's supposed to be synonymous. That's not what the word of God says. They're, they're vastly different and they have two different purposes. One is to come down to establish his kingdom, Jesus Christ, for a millennial reign, a thousand years where he's going to bind Satan and we're coming with him and he's coming to set up his kingdom on earth. That is not the same purpose as us being caught up, removed from the wrath to come and being placed at the wedding feast of the lamb, Revelation chapter 19 for seven years and then coming back with Jesus. Do you, do you see that? You can't sort of, you like chocolate, right? You like mashed potatoes? Chocolate mashed potatoes? Not so much. Not so much, right? Okay. That's the first main argument here is that they, they don't define the trumpets correctly as scripture calls them out and refers to them different. Just because we see the word trumpet doesn't mean, as we do even in the Old Testament, doesn't mean he's talking about a rapture or a second coming. It means a trumpet and it means a sound and it means it's a gathering. That's what it means or to go into battle. Second, the, the mid trib position denies the doctrine of imminency. Let me explain this. The doctrine says that Christ could return at any time with no prophetic events to transpire ahead of the rapture. Just think about that for a minute. But if the mid trib view is correct, Christ can't return until the midpoint of the tribulation. Then the prophecies will be fulfilled. Now, that's a problem. Nobody knows the hour or the time of the coming of Messiah, right? So if you say that he's coming at the midpoint, wherever you choose to start the tribulation, if you choose to start it, which I believe biblically we see it started in Revelation 6, we'll go there in a moment, we'll look at it ourselves. But if that's where you believe, and I believe scripture does describe the, the judgments that are already being poured out, as a matter of fact, it's the seventh seal at that point, but nonetheless, so it already had six seals before it, the judgments already begun to be poured out. If you know when that judgment's being poured out, and by the way, you're not going to mistake this, because a quarter of the population is going to die. So you're talking 1.8 billion, God bless you, 1.8 billion people, right? Some even argue at that time, potentially, if it's in our generation, it could be up to 2 billion, right, out of a population of 7.4 to 8 billion people alive today. You're not going to mistake this. This isn't gonna be something, I mean, we just had 500,000, right? In America, 330 million Americans, uh, 500,000 were supposedly all COVID related, right? We know that and I can talk about that in a whole other vein of a topic of data and accuracy there because somehow we've cured cancer, we've uh, cured heart disease and diabetes all in the last year uh, because when I look at the data and the numbers from the year before to see how many people have died compared to this year and how many people have died, well, I'll be darned, it's almost the same. Yet we had a major pandemic and all these other people died. Yes, they may, there are, COVID was real. People did die. I'm not going to deny that. But the reality is those that were succumbed by that virus had the propensity already and probably were going to be part of that one roughly one million people that die every single year, year after year for the last however many, you know, 50 years that we've been tracking that data. Every year we see that. You know, and it's whether it's, you know, the flu or something. It's not the flu that kills. It's the secondary bacterial infection, like a pneumonia, right? We just need to study. We need to see these things. You know, you talk to doctors, ask them the data. You know, you get an honest answer sometimes. And, uh, you know, I'm not, because, you know, there's a lot of physicians that are born-again believers, and they'll say, yeah, no, the data doesn't support that. You're right. The data doesn't support that. But there are that, certainly there are people that have had COVID that have had, uh uh difficulties and things that have happened because of that right diabetes things have come out or strokes or different so we acknowledge that but to sit there and say that we have had this a mass different amount of death I'm only bringing this because one is too many I think we'd all agree with that but the reality is I want you to look at how the world stood still this last year from last March the world stood still this in an infinitesimal number When you look at the worldwide population that have been uh, infected with COVID and died, an infinitesimal number compared to the entire 2 billion that's just in the first quarter of the Great Tribulation. They're not even comparable. But I want you to understand that. I want you to understand what we're talking about here. The reality is we could recognize or possibly declare a pandemic. So people knew, hey, things are going on. We had enough Common sense knowledge to say, people are getting sick. We need to look at this. Let's see what's going on. It wasn't a shock. People weren't like, how do we do this? No, people understood. That means that when the rapture, or excuse me, that means when this midway point, that means it has to begin the tribulation because if it's going to happen at the midpoint for the rapture, that means people will be able to recognize what? When the great tribulation starts, you can recognize in the pandemic when people got sick and something else was going on that was odd. You can turn around and recognize that when a quarter of the population dies from all these natural disasters, you can read right like you see it in Revelation, being poured out the wrath of the God, Revelation 6, mm-hmm. wrath of the Lamb of Christ. If that's true, that means that the minute that that starts happening, the clock turns and begins, which I can then do what? I can count 1,260 days from that point, and I will arrive at what? I will arrive at the three and a half year period, won't I? And at that point, I will know the day. I will know the hour in which Messiah, if he was going to come to rapture, I would know the time. And yet in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. The thief doesn't phone ahead. He doesn't call ahead to let you know when he's coming to break in. But if I know when the tribulation begins, I can tell you when the second return of Christ is coming. I can tell you that. What I can't tell you is the rapture. Now, I believe the rapture happens before, pre-tribulation. Okay, Mid-tribbers believe it's right in the middle. If it's in the middle... And we got a whole problem with Scripture where it tells me that we can't what? We can't know. Well, now we know. I could stop there. I won't. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. They reference Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. You should study these things. Look at these things in Scripture. You should be able to, we need to give an explanation to the folks when they wonder why we believe what we believe. It's, it's very concrete. Le- Revelation chapter 11:15 15 is where they hang the hat, if you will, or as I mentioned earlier, Revelation chapter 14, verses one through four. However, when I read in my Bible, Revelation chapter six, I look at what's called the sixth seal, before the seventh seal, the sixth seal cosmic judgments or disturbances, right? First of all, we've had six of them, which all is a shift back to earth. Because if you go back, just hold your finger. If you look back at Revelation chapter 4, where is John? The, that's right. The apostle John's in heaven. He's not on earth. He was translated. He's caught up, a type of a rapture. And it says that. How do we know that? Because he says those important words, look right there and underline them in your Bible. Some of the most important words in scripture. After these things. That is the Greek word, meo Okay. Do you know what that means after these things? It's really technical. It means after these things. Like you saw that coming, right? I like teed that up. After these things, literally, if I tell you that after service today, we're going to have a cleanup day, which we are, bring your shovels and all your stuff, and we're going to put mulch around. You don't walk, you're not expecting to stand up right now and walk out of service, right? We all understood. We're not grammatically challenged. We know what this means. It means after a specific event. What is chapter two and three divided in, in Revelation? That's right, he's talking to churches. And he's talking about the church age, the age we're living right now, right? I think we all would agree that. You're the bride of Christ, right? This is the church, yeah? Amen is the church worldwide. It's the believers that gathered the bride of Christ. So we're still in the church age, right? We're still here. And we've gathered in church and we're doing that. There'll come a time, the rapture is what actually ends the church age. Because when the church is removed... Can you still have an age if the church isn't here? No, by definition. So the church would be removed. So it's after these things. After what things? After chapter two and three, the church age. Okay, I'm tracking. After that, he's up in heaven. John's gathering around the throne. You know, the Lamb, chapter five, takes the scroll. Who's worthy to open the seal? Remember that? And, 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 the title deed to the earth and Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, comes forward. The only one, John, is weeping because no one is found worthy until the point of Jesus Christ coming forward. Again, if you have not sat with us through our teaching to revelation, I encourage you to go up to the church app, download it, listen to it at your time, or uh, or go to the website and download it. I go through these things line by line and verse by verse. But just for time's sake, if you go to chapter 6, we start to see... The seal judgments poured out. Please notice with me. It's during these first seven, really, but the six seal judgments, that a quarter of the population is destroyed. Who is destroying it? Is it the Antichrist? Is it Jesus? Well, I can look right there at verse 12 if you'll look at me, chapter 6. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun had become black as sackcloth of hair, of hair, and the moon became like blood. That's a problem. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, and the fig trees dropped in late figs when it was shaken by the mighty wind. Then a sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up. Have you ever seen the firmament, the sky above you, roll up like that? That's a massive cosmic disturbance. Do you know what that's going to do? Do you understand that human life is going to be severely altered? Just speaking from a cosmic disturbance, I mean, do you realize most of our air, where do you think we get our airs from? Do you think we get our airs from the trees? Or do you think we get them from the water and the vegetation growing in the water? You'd be right to say it's the vegetation in the water. 80% of our air comes from the vegetation that grows in the water. Do you know that moon and tides are affecting that? That you have a a low and a high tide? If the moon has changed and we have these cosmic disturbances where the firmaments are rolled back, the radiation and the rays are going to kill much of that that would live in the water like that? And it's going to destroy all of that, which means breathing is going to feel like you're, you know, up on a high, high mountain. Anybody here a skier or a snowboarder? I used to do Breckenridge or the Back Bowls back in the day, and I'd hike up. I'd take a, you know, up the chairlift, and then I would hike for another four or five hours and climb up to the very top. And then just to be able to go down the back side where the, they called them Back Bowls, where it was really awesome powder, right, no ice. But it took you three or four hours. By the time you got up there, you were... (sighs) Right? You're winded. Why do some of our athletes, they call it blood doping to some extent, and during Olympics, where do they go and train? They go up and train in high-altitude areas so that when they come to raise, run a race down at regular altitude, they have what? They have more oxygen within their organs and their blood so that they have an advantage. Right? We understand these things. These things are not beyond us today. So we already know this. So you're going to have the skies literally rolled back You're going to have so much vegetation die. Your air, I mean, just breathing, those that have lung issues, those that normally breathe at 90, 92, 96, 95 and above is good, right? 94 and above is good. Everybody alive at that point is going to go from 98 or 99 down to like 89 or 88. I mean, our O2 levels, our saturation is going to drop. And that's why it's not hard to see that, you know, 1.8, somewhere around there, billion people are going to die the skies are receded as a, as a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island, he says every mountain and island was moved out of its place. That's significant. This isn't just a localized uh, earthquake or cosmic disturbance. This is worldwide. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves of the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne they know they know and from who there it is underlined in your bibles the wrath of the lamb this isn't the antichrist this is jesus christ pouring out wrath to a, a what a sinful world a christ denying world that's what he's doing here it's judgment for the great day of his wrath has come. And he says, who is able to stand? So there's no question by Revelation 6. Again, the mid will say, well, no, well, Revelation chapter 14 is when the rapture begins. Oh, no. Oh, no. Cosmic disturbances, a quarter of your population, has already begun by Revelation 6. They believe that three the, first, the first three and a half years, they believe that um, you know, somehow there's going to be no major disturbances until really Revelation 14 quarter of your population are going to die. I think, you know, 2 billion somewhere. That's a pretty significant number. Not to mention, again, the time clock starts ticking, and we know exactly then when that 1,260 days, or right precisely within that period when Messiah would come again. So, clearly, that's a huge problem. It can't be resolved. Um, so, they don't even agree among themselves. Some, mid because they hear this, some mid-tribulation go, you know what? That's, you know what? We agree. The, the revelation, you know, um, the mid-trib begins at uh, Revelation 6, 12 through 17. Others will say, no, 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 Actually, it begins Revelation 11 because that's when it does mention the trumpet. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. It's Revelation 14. That's it. Even among themselves, they cannot agree as mid-tribbers when they actually believe the, revela- uh, the rapture happens. I'd like to go to the next view. This third view, okay? The post-tribulation rapture, probably the second most popular view within the church today. Pre-trib and post-trib are the two most popular, okay? Now, post-tribulation is that the rapture and the second coming are considered one event separated by a few months. I've mentioned that before. Pre-tribulation uh, those that believe in First Thessalonians 4.16 and take it literally, we see one second coming with what? Two phases. We talked about that last week, right? They would say, no, 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 no. No, 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 you're overcomplicating it. Nope, that's not it. It says they, they'll, the post-trips would say, no, the rapture will come at the end of the tribulation and concurrent with the second coming of Christ. Now, when is the second coming of Christ? Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 19. That's when he physically comes back. I, I want you to understand what has ha- transpired. The full seven years has. The full calamity of judgment, three probably quarters of the entire earth's population will be destroyed by then. So you're talking, you know, five billion, four or five billion people that will have been destroyed because of a Christ-rejecting world in sin. And that's just sobering when you think about that for a moment, that number of people. What they believe is that, the post-tribbers believe that you will, that because it's synonymous with one event, it's been called the you. Um, It means that they will, as it says, and they're correct, 1 Thessalonians 4 says that Christ will come in the air, and they say yes. And after the seven-year tribulation, that's when, by the way, my Bible tells me the church doesn't go through wrath, but after the seven-year tribulation, then what's going to happen? Then those believers, right, they're going to be caught up to meet Jesus, and you know what a U is, right? Do an upside down U. It's, it's called an upside down you. That moment, they're going to come right back to earth. That's what they believe. They'll be caught up in the air only to come right back to earth. Where there are other people already on earth. I, and some of you are laughing, don't these people, that we, we want to, that we can divide about some of these things, okay? This doesn't mean that, you know, they're not saved. They're saved. They just have a different view and a different belief. Maybe, and maybe there's some of you here this morning. We don't have to divide over these things. That's okay but I want you to understand what the view and everybody here, what we're really saying. If we're saying we believe that, what are we saying? We're saying that we believe that we're gonna get caught up in the air and then moments later, and I'll explain to you why they think it's moments, a specific Greek word that they use and say, see, that means moments. It's a literal word. And they're gonna come right back. The real rub isn't the going up. We everybody that believes in a rapture believes you're getting caught up in the air. That's not the rub coming back down with Jesus Christ. That's not the rub. We all believe that we will eventually come back down with Christ. It's the top of the U. It's the top of the U. Is that top of the U seven years? Revelation 19 seems to tell us that. Or is that top of the U a moment? Okay, this is very, very important because this defines everything in the whole post-trib viewpoint, right? Uh, it's good. it's concurrent with the second coming of Christ, believers will meet Christ in the air, make a quick U-turn and accompany him back to the earth. Now, post-tribulations agree that believers are exempt from God's wrath, even though they just went through a seven-year tribulation period. They believe that somehow they will be supernaturally protected through those seven years, okay? We can take that here in a minute. They believe that the outpouring of God's wrath will be confined to the very end of the tribulation. I have a hard time with that because it begins in Revelation chapter six and a quarter of the population is going to die. It's not like seven years later, then everybody dies. So maybe they don't consider a quarter of the population significant enough, 2 billion people. All I know is the world just reacted this last year in a pandemic with hundreds of thousands or not millions as though it was the end of the world. I can't imagine what just 2 billion People, I say just, that's a lot, but 2 billion people, how the rest of the world will handle that. It's, it's striking. And it's only going to be unleashed on unbelievers. So, you know, somehow we're going to have these post-tribs believe, you know, we're going to have these like, I'm wrecked by TV shows, these bubbles or something like that, that uh, supernaturally the wrath of God will not affect the Christian living on earth. So, somehow it's going to affect the whole earth. It's going to be hard to breathe. All these things are going to happen, right? Just in the first quarter. Um, forget the rest of the seal bowl and, uh, you know, trumpet, forget the rest of that. Somehow the Christian is going to be like supernaturally protected through that, which I love that, but I'm not sure I understand the purpose then of being here for that. So, um, advocates that support this view, uh, suggest a number of arguments. This is how they would define their belief that anybody that's post-trib. They would say, first, it's simple and it's streamlined. It's one coming. I'd say, okay, I believe that. And they would say, but it's not two phases. And I'd say, why? And they'd say, well, it's only one phase. I'd say, okay. It's one phase. It eliminates the need for a two-stage coming of Christ. Okay. Okay. Second, post-tribulations would often assert that the word meet in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, if you look in your Bibles, it says that he's going to meet us. He's going to catch us up. That word, uh, apentes, thesis" is um, a word that means meet. And it means to go out and meet someone, like you're going out to meet a visiting dignitary and escort that individual back to the place in which he came from. So they take that word very, very literal. I, they they may not take the rest of the passage literal, but they take that word very literal. It suits them well, and because of that, this narrow and technical meaning of the word suggests that after believers are caught up to meet the Lord in air, because of this word meaning, you know, literal, it's a you meet somebody and you come back with you know, meet a dignitary, come back that they mu- that the believers must be um, accompanying Jesus Christ back to earth instead of following him to heaven. Now, right there, that should just raise a pause in everybody's uh, just eschatology understanding here this this morning. Did Jesus Christ tell the thieves on the cross today, you go with me to be in paradise and I go to my father's house to prepare many mansions if it were not so I would not have told you? we read other passages like that. He didn't say, I cut you up in the air and I bring you back down to earth with me. Right? He didn't say that. He said, I prepare these houses that I will come get you and bring you there and specifically, where was he? Because he says, I'm going to bring you to where I am. Where, where was he? Was he in the air? Is he just sort of floating around in the air? Just kind of like, you know, no. He went and he's seated or standing at the right hand of the Father. He, this is what the Word of God says. This isn't me arguing against position. This is what the Word of God says. He is currently in heaven. Now, can Jesus be everywhere? Yes, he's omnipresent. I, I won't deny that. But if we take this literal, they're saying that he's caught up and then he's, we're coming back down if we're the, those raptured in that generation. Now, however, I want you to be very clear. There is no single passage in all of Scripture that indicates there's anything of an escorting back that must happen immediately. We read in Revelation 19 in a moment <clears throat> that we're going to come back with him and there'll be a millennial reign but nothing that says it has to be in a moment. The only thing that we see in a moment is the rapture, a twinkling of an eye, but nothing else after that. Douglas Moo, he's a very prominent or a big proponent of the pre or the post-tribulation. He's a scholar and (coughs) he teaches seminaries. I remember I studied him when I was in seminary. And this argument, uh, he purposely, and he, again, he's a post-tribber, and he says, this can't be given any weight. The word does not have to bear this technical meaning, nor is that certain that the return to this point must be, in the origin of the word, immediate. Even he, as a post-tribber, says that the, the, impl- the implication of the Greek doesn't imply that. It's not in context there. Even he, as a post-tribber, who holds that view, says, no, you, we, can't, we can't assert that. Well, I think that leaves rooms for other views, like I said, such as pre-tribulationism. Third, post-tribbers see that the trumpets mentioned, again, in Matthew 24, 31, 1 Thessalonians four sixteen, and 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-two are being one and the same, the same things the mid-tribbers do. But as we've already studied, they're clearly not the same. Since the trumpet in Matthew 24, 31 happens at the end of the tribulation, I at least understand the post-tribber's perspective a little bit more than the mid-tribber, because at least Matthew 24, 31 is at the end of the great tribulation. It is the actual last trumpet. The problem is 1 Corinthians 15, 52 isn't. It isn't. And neither is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 or 17. It's not. It's not Matthew 24. It's not the last trumpet. So they exert that must—they, you know, say it must be the same. So the only similarity between these trumpets is that they draw the Lord's people together. But if you look at the contrast, it's far greater. Again, you can go back through the teaching from March 28th on the church app, uh, where I go through these different trumpets and, you know, in great detail. Now, I will say this. The post-trib view has some holes. First, I think the biggest hole is the word of God. Revelation chapter 19, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to offend anybody here this morning if you're post-trib, but I'm just being a literalist. If I read Revelation 19, will you please turn there with me? Very important passage. One of the most significant passages you have in Scripture regarding Christ's second coming. It is the actual most detailed passage in all of your Scripture that describes his second coming, okay? It's more comprehensive. It's more detailed of the second coming of Christ, and anywhere else in your Bible. Yet, it contains no mention of a resurrection or rapture. I think the silence is, is really compelling. Please look at Revelation 19, verse 1. And after these things, we see another after these things. Boy, that sounds familiar. Revelation chapter 4. After what things? After these things, when he says it in chapter 4, he was talking about what again? The church age. Now, in Revelation chapter 19, he's saying after these things, what's he talking about again? What just happened? A seven-year tribulation, right? We just saw all of these judgments poured out. You can go back and look, and you saw the bowl judgments, obviously, uh, chapter 15, you, you, you know, 16. We went through and we looked at, you know, when we covered Revelation, we went through and saw the trumpet judgments and the seal judgments. After these things, after the judgments All right, after the great tribulation, right, after these judgments have been poured out by Jesus Christ, Revelation 6, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to our God or belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. It makes sense. He's talking about what? He's talking about the celebration in heaven because the wrath of the lamb has been poured out and justice has been served to the great harlot, to the antichrist, to Satan himself, right? Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on their throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great." And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude as the sound of the many waters, as the sound of the mighty thunderings. Uh, I love that. That's the uh, reunion folk. That's us. That's the, that's the homecoming, the great family homecoming. That's all of us. We're reading about ourselves right here. When they said, I heard that sound and it sounded like the great many waters, that's you. That's you. That's you worshiping. We're reading about ourselves right here. He says, "Hallelujah! for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. When did the bride and when did this start? I believe right at chapter four. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. He's talking about the angel there. And I fell at his feet to worship him. Who's him? An angel, the angel that was showing him this. But he said to me, let's not do Genesis 3 again. No, he didn't say that. he He says, what? So that you do not do that, I am your, please see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren whom you have the testimony of Jesus. He says very clearly, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, verse 11 through 15, very clearly we read. Now I saw heaven open and behold the white horse. Where did he see open? Very, very important. He saw heaven opened. So they're coming from heaven, not in the air, but from heaven. Not at the top of that U where it's just for a moment, he's caught up and then he comes right back down. Post-tribulationists, not the top of the U, the upside down U like that. No, heaven, I, opened, I saw heaven open, and behold, the white horse and him who sat on it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes were like the flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. We certainly know that angels don't have crowns because they are not to be worshipped. He had a name written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. Who is this Jesus Christ. None of us can miss this. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen. Who are the armies? You and I and all those that are glorying in heaven right now. Followed him on a white horse. We're going to ride horses, man. We're coming back with horses. I get so excited every time I read this passage. I just focus on the horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he will strike the nations, and he himself will rue them with a rod of iron, talking about the millennial reign, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God, and he who is on his robe and on his thigh, the name is written, King of King, Lord of Lords, and praise God and hallelujah for that. There is no other. So John Wolvard, again, writes a lot about... Uh, scholar that writes a lot to do with eschatology and in times events, he notes, if details like the casting of the beast, which we read, and the false prophet in the lake of fire are mentioned, which you can continue reading on, okay, and the specific resurrection of the tribulation saints is described, how much more the rapture and translation of the church as a whole should have been included if, as a matter of fact, It is part of this great event. They have no scriptural proof for a post-tribulation rapture in the very passage that it ought to be in. Just think about that for a minute. The one place with the most amount of detail about Christ physically coming back to earth, about the entire event, about all that would culminate at this time, And the single most important thing that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, I want you to comfort one another with this, is missing in that passage if you believe that's when the raptures occur. He he put in all the other great events and details, extreme detail. But he forgot to put that in there? Oh no. Second, as he's already pointed out, the wrath of God is not confined to the end of the tribulation as pros-tribbers maintain. God's wrath is mentioned as early, and I've kind of covered this already, is the six-sealed judgment in Revelation chapter 6. We don't have to wait till Revelation 18 or the beginning of 19 when heaven's celebrating the fact that the justice is poured out to look at it and go, oh, no, it doesn't come at the end. It's through all seven years. It's the same problem with the mid-trip perspective. It's not like it's somehow just you know, the tribulation begins, but the actual wrath doesn't get poured out to either halfway or towards the end. You, we just read a quarter of the population is going to die at the beginning of the great tribulation. I think that's pretty significant. I, I wouldn't call that just a tribulation. I think that's the great tribulation, right? So I think that's an important point. God's wrath is global in scope. It devastates the entire earth. And it's, to me, it's difficult how believers could be protected from this wrath since it's universal, and there's no indication that anyone on earth is fully spared from those effects. And that's the other big question, because there are so many passages that says that the church will not be given unto wrath. Wrath is poured out for judgment. Why would Jesus Christ, through his spilled blood, redeem you and I, cleanse us, wash us, and then turn around and beat the bride, and not only beat the bride, but then put the bride through the most extermi- you know, extenuating circumstances that have ever existed in all of humanity. Jesus Christ would say, you know, I think this is good for you. What? He died so I could be set free. He died so that I wasn't dead in my sin and trespasses. He didn't die so that, I could turn around and go through the wrath, and then turn around and go, Lord. But I thought you loved me. No. no, no, I don't read that in Scripture. He were fully spared. You either are, you know, recipients of the wrath, or you're not. Now again, is there a possibility that He could put supernatural bubbles around all the Christians? Yes. I can't remove that. However, does my Scripture tell me anything about that? No, it does not. Does my Scripture, on the other hand, tell me that? in the beginning of the tribulation, that we're caught up? Sure it does, because I know we haven't got to First Thessalonians 5 yet, but please look back with me at First Thessalonians 5. We'll just touch on this a little bit today. We'll cover it in more detail next week. But he goes back, if you actually want to step back to... Uh, First Thessalonians chapter four, look at fifteen. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive will remain until the coming of the Lord. Will no means precede those who are asleep? For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and then with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the first resurrection we see that way for the um, those in Christ that have already died, their bodies physically. Going up there, then we who are alive will remain and shall be caught up. There's the harpazo together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the first phase of the second coming. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. He says, We're always going to be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these. But concerning the times and the season, brethren, I have no need that I should write to you for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, and then sudden destruction comes upon them, a labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. So this day shall not overtake you. You're not there. You're not there. When these labor pains are put, Matthew 24, the great tribulation, when that happens, you're not there, brother and sister. You're all the sons of light, the sons of the day. We are not the sons of of night nor darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep at night are those who get drunk and um, are drunk at night. But let us who are the day of sober be put on the breastplate of faith and love and as the helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we read. I mean, that's, that's letting the word of God speak for itself right now. And just let, it, just let it just sort of penetrate our hearts here, right? So clearly we're spared from these effects. Third, uh, post-tribulationists maintain that the rapture happens at the same time in the second coming. Believers will be caught up to the Lord and, uh, with the Jesus in the air, and he's, he's coming to heaven to do, or he's coming from heaven in the air to do what? He's coming back to, according to them, to judge the world. So that's why it's just like a minute, immediate U-turn. And they're gonna come right back with them. But this raises a very important question um, that's often, I think, overlooks and doesn't get discussed in many conversations. If God miraculously preserves the church throughout the entire tribulation, throughout that entire seven years, and we, the church, are on earth here, then why even have a rapture? Every time I see the word harpazo, or any time I see the word rapture, out of the six occasions I see in scripture, five of them are specifically tied to man or woman specifically man in this case, being raptured out and going to heaven, even if it's just for a period of time. That's all right. It's okay. Where's that sign? God may be calling. Just probably not on your cell phone right now. That's okay. It's all right. You all might want to silence your phones. We'll call you out. No, I don't want to. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm going to keep going. So forgive me. Um, Just teasing you, brother. So um, the reality is, you know, why bother, right? If, if, if we're going to be called up that way and caught up, why even have a rapture? It becomes inconse- inconsequential. It's, it doesn't serve a purpose. It doesn't make any sense that way. The Lord won't be delivering us from anything. We'll be with him in heaven. You see, there's really no purpose for it. And again, if you're a post-tribulationist, you have to explain to me biblically what's going to happen to you. How is God going to preserve you while you're on earth during those seven years? My Bible tells me in 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm not here. I'm caught up before that begins. So I can answer that question. But how do you answer that question if you hold on to a post-trib view? Because the Scripture's silent about that. It's silent. And that, that should be a little unnerving. Pre-tribulation gives meaning to the rapture. If Christ comes before the tribulation, his coming is filled with a purpose. As I was mentioning, every single time, those four that go up like that are caught up, every single time we see that, the four are, or sorry, out of the six, five of them are, are going to heaven. Only one, which was Philip, and he was translated some 20 miles away. Why? To give the gospel. There was purpose the rapture, the translation always has purpose. When Paul was caught up to the third heaven, it had purpose. When Elijah was taken up, or Enoch, it had purpose. It's not just a, a trivial event that way. And for, a, for a, a post-tribber, they maybe don't mean to, but they trivialize the rapture something that comes at the very end, and so what's the purpose of it? To go up and come down like a U-turn? How do you deal with the passages that say that he's going to take us to our Father's house? That hes I mean, so what, are we just like kind of caught up in the air there, and he brings the house to us in the air? I mean, we have to deal with these scriptures. We must honor the whole counsel of God, all 66 books. It must be all done in harmony. The fourth view. Okay, we're getting there. I know we're getting out of time here. The partial rapture. This was first articulated in the mid-19th century. Um, It imagines, and I use that word loosely, that there's multiple raptures and occurs throughout the tribulation. The timing of a person's rapture is based on the depth of their obedience. And I thought we dealt with this um, when you start to think about uh, what happened in the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. You know, sola fate. You know, I, we think of these things and what Luther and those men, when they said, turn from the tradition and turn back to the Word. Let the Word of God speak for itself. Um, this idea that we are saved by any other means or mechanism other than faith is ridiculous. Every other world religion teaches in some capacity, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a Taoist, whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're um, a Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, you fill in the blank, okay? Any other worldwide religion, I really want you to think about this. Even Roman Catholicism, okay? I grew up Catholic, you know that. Even Roman Catholicism teaches there's something called moral and veal sins, okay? You won't find that in scripture. But the idea behind that is that we can do something to earn our salvation. Do you realize that Christianity is the only ideology, I'm going to call it a belief system, I don't want to call it a religion because it's not, it's an ideology, a belief system in which Christ is ushered in, God has authored for salvation. It's the only one that doesn't put the onus on the individual to save himself. Do you realize that? Every other religion is so steeped in pride. Please look at the authorship. Satan himself, Isaiah 14, wanted to be like the God Most High. His sin was pride. And everything Lucifer touches or is steeped in has to do with pride. These other religions put the human being at the center point, it's about them. And it's about their ability and their strength to overcome their situation, which is another nicely fit, covered agenda of what? Pride. As though I think I could actually do something good to save myself. They never even see it that way. Yet Christ told us that when we come with humility When we come to him and recognize him as Lord and Savior, when we believe in him and on the resurrection, then we're saved. And it's so we don't boast. And so we don't take credit. And so we don't look upon ourselves, but that he gets the glory. That's the ideology that Christ has birthed. That's the gospel that God gives. It's not man-centric as far as, me or you needing to save ourselves. But wherever you look and you find pride and you find it in the Proverbs and you read it, watch it because before pride comes the, or after pride comes the what? Fall, sudden destruction. Why? Because it's steeped. It's steeped in Lucifer. It's steeped in his spirit. Not in God's. Not in God's. And that's why when you just look at these things in life, when we just look at them and we just sort of measure it back, and we try to, where is this coming from? You do. You recognize it's the world, the flesh, or the devil. And it becomes very, very clear. Jesus came to die, He came to save. All He asked us to do is believe believe. This partial rapture position distinguishes devout spiritual believers from worldly believers. Where in the Bible does it talk about that? Then what's the need for the Bema Seat judgment? How do you explain this? Um, I mean, Matthew 25, 1-13, 1 Thessalonians 5-6, Hebrews 9-28, and 1 John 2-28, they'll turn around and tell us that we are to be waiting and watching for Christ's come. And it says that we're going to be raptured to heaven before even the tribulation. They believe that worldly believers are going to endure some degree of tribulation caught up. Some subsequent believer, uh, raptures, I meant to say. One of their followers said this, All believers will go home on the same train, but not all on the first section. Do you know how when you study your enemy, I hope you're focused more on Jesus than you are on the Antichrist. I hope you're not turning around and obsessing about who the Antichrist is, is where he's going to come. I don't care who he is, I don't care because my focus isn't on him. My focus is on Jesus and that's what my Bible tells me to say because I'm to be looking up. My redemption draws an eye. He didn't say look over. He said look up. Who am I looking to? Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is very, very simple. If I'm expecting him to come and take me, right, and all of us, the bride of Christ, who's going to rapture us, I'm expecting Revelation 19 to be true as well, which is this wedding feast of the Lamb. And I'm expecting that there's going to be a great tribulation, right? And all these things are going to happen on earth, as we've been talking about. How, in any capacity, would Christ determine you're a first rounder, you're a second rounder, and you're a third rounder, and you're a fourth rounder on the, pre, on the tribulation? And the rapture, excuse me to be specific. How would you do that? Your Bible doesn't say, you know what this reminds me of again? You got to forgive me. I I was raised Roman Catholic. I I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. So there's stuff that are still very uh, inside of me that I grew up with that as I've learned to read the Bible over the years, I come back and recognize it. And I'm able to go, oh, I see what this is of. Oh, I see what that's of. And I found that through a lot of believers that, that grew up in different denominations or different things in your life. You are kind of sensitive to some of those things. You're more aware because you grew up in that. Roman Catholicism teaches of something called a purgatory, a holding tank. For those believers that maybe didn't do just enough to get there, to heaven. Maybe they didn't do enough. Maybe they, they, they were a little shy. They could either be bought to heaven, okay, and they could turn around and you could buy penance that way and they would be released from the purgatory and they would go on to be with the lord that's what that's what the teaching and dogma of roman catholicism teaches you have to understand that that's what it teaches they may not practice it as much today but nonetheless that is very much steeped in the catechism and the teaching as part of that when i look at this this is nothing new under the sun all this is is a purgatory in the sky that's all they've described. That there's a rapture, but that rapture is only by what you do to deserve it, how you could earn it. And in, we're right back where we were in the 1400s, 1300s again, where people are pay, putting out money to try to pay their loved one indulgences, they, to buy them, to turn around and, and somehow get into heaven. Do you know the cults do the same thing? Sangria and different you know i don't want to go through it but they can turn around if you study some of these things in the cults do you know what they do i know a distant family member when one of our family members died uh came in went and wanted this is many many years ago but they came to us and says hey we just uh know that such and somebody's died there that way great grandma whoever and uh we just went and paid this woman this great amount of money and we know that now she's going to be heaven and I just looked and I went, one, what are you doing mixing spirits with someone like that? That's mystical. That's that's God's very clear in scripture. Stay away from those things. That's cult. What are you doing? But it's still alive today. I want you to understand that. They just packaged it. Satan packages it differently but it's the same lie. And that's what I recognize here in this partial rapture. It's the same lie. The third reason here is all believers are promised immunity from God's wrath. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus delivers us from what? The last to come. He didn't say he delivers some. There's a partial. He says he, it's inclusive, right? Or, or Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. I'll turn there quickly for you because of our, our time. I want to be sensitive to your, your time here this morning. But Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Because you have kept my command and persevered, or persevere. excuse me, I will also keep you from the hour trial which has come upon the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. The partial rapture view creates a kind of, like I said, living purgatory on earth during the tribulation. That's all it is. It's just repackaged. Fourth, since faithful believers are spared from the tribulation according to the partial rapture view, the worldly believers aren't. What need is there to reward believers at the judgment seat of Christ? Where do we read that? Second Corinthians chapter five ten. What do you need to beam a bema seat judgment for? If the better ones have already gone and they get the better rewards, then what are we doing at the BMC judgment? Who's differentiating the crowns that we're going to all just take and cast to the feet of Christ anyway, amen? Fifth view, and we'll close here. The pre-wrath rapture. The pre-wrath view holds that the rapture occurs five and a half years. Mia, go ahead and bring up the screen. At this point, you can look at all five views. Some of you are visual. You like visual pictures. It'll point it out for you. You can see where each one of these take place on a timeline. But the pre-wrath rapture, its view holds that the rapture will occur five and a half years into the tribulation. It's basically a three-quarters tribulation. Uh, the calamities up to this point in this view result from the wrath of man and the wrath of Satan. That's what they explain. However, Revelation chapter 6 says what? Right in the beginning of it all, that it's the wrath of the lamb, not the wrath of, you know, not the wrath of Satan or the wrath of man. The pre-wrath rapture view events uh, say that the sixth seal is a sign of the impending day of the Lord, which they limit to the final quarter of the tribulation. They somehow say, well, what really happens in Revelation 6 isn't actually until three quarters in. I'm not sure you had to chronologically do that with the judgments because, again, they try to kind of back it all up. But there's really no way to do that. Chronologically, it's the first, second, third, fourth, and then you obviously have the trumpets, and then you have the bulge. It's They're chronological, so I don't know how you exactly do that. I think a key problem with the timing is that uh, the day, again, the day of the Lord comes unexpectedly. We talked about that even with the mid-trip perspective. So if I know it's three quarters in, guess what I can do? I can tell you the day and the hour in which the rapture happens. Can never be. That's why any view that doesn't teach in my scriptural understanding, any view I believe that doesn't, tech, that doesn't teach that the rapture happens before the tribulation, you run the risk of turning around and eisegeting, at best, at worst, turning around and actually saying that scripture is inaccurate. At worst, to try to explain it away. Because how else can you explain away that no one knows the time or the hour? If you hold any of these other five positions, and again, I could go through more in this position, but you get the point. It's the same idea. It's just three-quarters of the way in. Really is what they've done, right? First five and a half years, um, three-quarter tribulation. It's the same idea. They just keep, you know, Satan's like, pick one, you know, pick one of these ones at the end. Yeah, no, no, no. There's only one that honors the rest of all of Scripture, and that has to happen before the tribulation because the minute the tribulation happens, guess what? You and I know the timing of Christ's coming. We know it, and if you're a post-tribulationist, you believe the timing of Christ's coming is at the same time that the rapture occurs as many of the mid-tribbers and other positions hold. Different points like that. The rapture occurs at different times. But as a post trib which is probably the second most popular outside of the pre-trib, you would have to honor the fact that, but Christ says nobody knows the time or the hour. How do you explain that? And the reality is it can't be explained away. How do you explain that you must go to your father's house? If it were not so, I would not have told you. That's where I am. How do you explain that away? Again, you see what I mean? At best, you're eisegeting, which is horrible. At worst, you're turning around and you're basically dishonoring the rest of the scripture. You're, you're, you're saying it doesn't exist. You can't harmonize it. And just You know, God wanted us all here this morning to walk out of here with comfort. Look, if you do hold on to one of these other views, that that's between you and Jesus. I love you. You're a brother. We don't we don't divide over these things. None of these things mean we divide over it. But as I as I sit here and I just in conclusion out of all five views that we talked about, right? Clearly the, the pre-trib and post-trib, you know, if I just simplify it, are really the two dominant views. And when you look at these, even out of those two dominant views, both of those views that believe that you're exempt from the exempt from the wrath of God. Both believe that. One just states that on earth we will go through that tribulation but somehow be supernaturally protected. The other one states we'll be raptured before. When you study scripture, because you need to be Bereans, it doesn't matter what I believe. What is Jesus telling you in his word? Which one of these passages... Which one of these scriptures, which one of these views is the only one that brings about a harmony to the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, to the entire word of God? And I suggest to you this morning there's only one, and that's the pre-tribulation view. And that's because the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture because you and I are blood-bought, and we are not meant to go through a tribulation We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He refers again. Please come and see the documentary for the, you know, the wrath to come. The movie it helps to understand the understanding from an Israel Israeli's perspective, growing up in the Galilee with a Galilean wedding ceremony understanding that when he, a father would say to the son, go, you know, or the son would say to the father, I'm going to, Dad, I would like to betroth this woman. Okay, son, he knew that meant go build on to my house. Can you imagine if he went that day? The father says, go get your bride. The bride went. And she says, honey, we're going home to your father's house because that was tradition in the Galilean wedding ceremony. And the son says, you know, I know I said that. But I've done nothing to prepare for you. I've done nothing to prepare the places I told that I've established for you and that I would be with you always. As a matter of fact, I'm going to leave you here. I'm going to leave you in your mother's house or I'm going to leave you where you're already living. Your father's house, not my father's house. How do you think that woman would feel that day? A little betrayed, a little confused, especially because every other time that that had happened, all her friends in the weddings that she had in the galley attended, it always happens the same way. But just on this one occasion, it happens different. How do you think she feels? Even worse, the husband turns around and says, Wife, while we're married, that's fine. But I'm going to leave you to yourself. You'll have to fend for yourself. You're going to go through the greatest tribulation that has ever existed on the earth. And it's going to be seven years, but I'm going to leave you to it on your own. I'll phone home sometimes, but I'm not going to be there while you go through it physically. How do you think she's going to feel? As the bride, Is she going to feel comforted, especially when all her other friends and when she's seen a Galilean wedding? She's always seen it performed differently. That's what we're asking when you and somebody comes to you and says, accept any other view other than a pre-tribulation rapture or a pre-tribulation or pre-millennial. That's what they're asking you to say. They don't mean it that way, but when you bring it to its end conclusion, that is what they're asking us to say as though Christ is going to let the bride be beaten. God forbid. He didn't redeem you so that you and I could turn around and be put through a great trial. He didn't redeem us so that we could turn around and, and also just be comforted in our own doings. No, he says that we're to be about our what? Our Father's business. There's a lot of work to be done. The stakes are high. So will you stand and pray with me? I know we went through a lot of passages here, not only this morning, but the last three Sundays. I encourage you, we'll probably put out, we'll probably add some of this to the rapture booklet that we've written and put some of this stuff together so you guys can have this. But my encouragement through going through these last three Sundays, not only 1 Thessalonians 4, that every one of us here understands why we believe what we believe that every one of us here can be comforted and we can also give comfort to others, which is what Christ commanded us to do, comfort one another with these things. And I pray it's just settled in our hearts once for all that no matter what happens, no matter how much evil goes on in this world, no matter how difficult, we're not to run from it. We're to witness in it and we're to draw people to Jesus so that at that time of the rapture, the whole world would be caught up in a twinkling of an eye. Father, Lord, you know that's my heart and our brothers and sisters here, Lord, your children, that's all of our hearts here this morning. To think of the lost, Lord, the dying, those that are practicing iniquity, Lord, those that know you and yet deny you. Please, God, forgive us they do not know what they do, Lord. Forgive them they do not know what they do, Lord. Jesus, we pray, use us in these last days. Please, God, the stakes are high, Lord. We need to be about your business. Please allow us, every single person that will listen, allow us to warn them of the judgment to come and also of the love that's already been poured forward. Your love, Lord. Your love, Father. Your love, Jesus. Hence, Holy Spirit, thank you for the seal that bears witness inside of us and every one of us that testifies to this truth that we know that we've been redeemed, that we don't have to wonder, but we are sealed and secure. Lord, when we are in your will, we are invincible, God, because of you. Certainly not from physical death, but, Lord, from spiritual So Jesus, have your way in us today. I pray, settle all this in our hearts. Lord, let us comfort one another. Maranatha, Jesus, we're looking up because you've told us our redemption draws nigh. We pray and we ask this all according to you in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. I love you. Have a great week. Please come back here in about 30 minutes. Those that are in children's ministry, you got to hang out because you're going to need help. But if you can be back in 30 minutes, grab a rake, grab a shovel. we got some work to do.